Happy Independence Day, belatedly, and welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me as always on Tuesdays, the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com, who's also, by the way, ironically, a big fan of liberty and freedom, Andrew Malcolm. You know, for a prince and a regent, you you do democracy pretty oh, well, I man. Do. Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, you know, uh, regal... Uh, is a burden that I, I carry, but it's a responsibility uh, to my country. All right. Well, there you go. From the regent and the prince right there, as an endorsement of democracy. <laughs> you don't find that in the British monarchy. I'm telling you that right now, folks. No, but there was a great uh, was a great uh, uh, cartoon on on Twitter on Sunday, saying with uh, George Washington on his horse pointing a saber at the viewer and saying, uh, uh, "Have a great day at work tomorrow, Britain." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you enjoyed work on Monday, folks. Uh, you know, if you weren't in the United States. We had a holiday. I don't know about the rest of you guys. All right. Um, and we get away. That's a great way to sort of lead into your uh, VIP column over at redstate.com. The strange mix of modern U.S. politics and holidays. Now, we've just been through a couple of them. We had Juneteenth, which was a big Texas holiday here for decades before it became a federal holiday. Um, and I don't think anybody was really all that interested in Arbor Day. Nobody took the day off. I went out and hugged a tree. No, I really didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But tell us a little bit about the strange mix of modern U.S. politics and holidays. Uh, well, well, it's uh, a part of it is personal. It's a reminiscence. I start off with uh, taking my uh, my oldest son, uh, who was a toddler at the time, to his first fireworks show in Fort Lee, New Jersey. We're, we're, we're sitting on the blanket, uh, waiting that interminable wait as darkness grows for the start of the fireworks families all around and now he knew nothing about fireworks but he knew to be excited because i was excited <laughs> right and i told him it was a birthday party outdoors in the dark so he was uh, really intrigued by that so we're sitting there and then you know at the start of the show they shoot off one of those huge mortar rounds it doesn't do anything except soar into the sky and explode with a huge thunk that ruffles your shirt and that went off and his eyes grew very wide and then he jumped up grabbed his teddy bear and said okay let's go <laughs> that was that's the it. show that's the show that's a wrap <laughs> we're done but yeah well i uh we didn't leave and uh and i uh tutored him on the, the the fine points of of watching fireworks and when to go ooh and ah and so forth so uh we've enjoyed many many displays since uh but I, what i did was i i went through and looked at at um the holiday and the state of politics today in the country and i won't spoil it for people but um in case somebody might go there but uh uh trying to tie in a holiday and this and the state of our country and politics and um yeah I, yep. hope, I hope it worked well i hope it does too but i mean it's it's a it's a good time for this column because you know the city of orlando this was i think just a day or so before your column went live up yeah. at redstate.com yeah. city of orlando issued this really weird 
statement or declaration, I think it was on the third, right? It may have been on Sunday or could have maybe even been on Saturday saying, well, we know that a lot of people don't feel like celebrating uh, our nation's, uh, you know, birthday because blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah. <laughs> people looked at that and said, well, screw you too, pal. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm yeah, sorry exactly. that maybe things aren't going your way at the moment, but that's no reason to, to sit there and say, well, uh, I'm not going to celebrate being an American because the policies I like are not in place. I mean, that's, well, you that- know, that's, that's a theme. There were uh, a lot of celebrities, just, uh, was it Jessica Chastain? Yes. With making an obscene gesture on Twitter uh, towards the holiday for the country uh, uh, that um, I, I guess the abortion ruling and the gun ruling combined and, just the general state of their leader, their party's leader and the country's leader, unfortunately, uh, has caused them to um, want to make a, a sour statement about uh, the nation's birthday. So, uh, yeah, we're talking on Independence Day, by the way. This is we're actually recording this on on Independence Day, and this is the thing that really frustrates me about people. Um, I, and I'm going to break into my Andy Rooney here, Andrew. I'm going to I'm going to uncork my Andy Rooney. What Do is that. it about people who are just not happy about this country unless all their policies are adopted? I don't understand that. You know, you didn't hear this from conservatives for 50 years after Roe v. Wade. They never said, "Oh, we're embarrassed for our country. Oh, we hate our country." They just worked to try to change things. <laughs> How was right, that, Andy? Yeah, right, Andy. <laughs> there's oh, two Andys. We got two Andys. Yeah, that's <laughs> All of a sudden, right. There's two Andys. Exactly right. Yeah, uh, that was a good one, by the Thank way. You. Thank you. Yeah, I've been working on that one for a while. The older I get, the better I am at that. By the way, I he'll, just want to he'll say be that. here all week, folks. <laughs> it's really maybe the only maybe the only um, impression I do passively well. And I used to really like Andy Rooney just because he had that he had that whole curmudgeon thing going on. But I mean, honestly, this is. This is my gripe, right? Yeah. When you're talking about people who are unhappy about the Dobbs ruling, which overturned Roe, um, well, I'm sorry, but conservatives have been fighting Roe v. Wade for 50 years, and you didn't hear conservatives say, I don't want to live in my country. I think my country's an embarrassment. Even though this country, our abortion policies were roughly similar to that of China and North Korea's, you didn't hear people go on and on on the 4th of July saying, well, you know, we... Yeah, we had another, you know, uh, 900,000 abortions in this country. So I just can't celebrate this. I just can't celebrate this. I mean, I never saw anybody say that. You didn't. And that's typical of the the different attitudes of both sides. And uh, that's part of that was part of the column on Sunday that uh, examining why is it so partisan now and the forces behind that drove this increased partisanship uh, and um, in the in the country for and it was for your you're right for 50 years it's um i i also did an, an audio commentary on this that that when the supreme court makes a decision like roe v wade it was way way ahead of its time and so we've had 50 years of division and anger and even some some deaths uh, growing out of it. And yet, in 2017, the Supreme Court makes its decision on gay marriage. And 
things didn't explode because the Supreme Court made its decision when the country was ready for it. You know, we'd all, the polls showed that most people uh, were, you know, they might not like it, but okay, if two people who love each other want to be together, whatever. And, uh, and so there wasn't the kind of divisiveness and split. Now, it didn't have to do with life and death, but um, it, it did show that when the court makes a decision in the time for it, that it's um, generally accepted. Right. Right. Well, you know, and the thing is, is that, and, and this is, this is really more to the point. All Dobbs did was return the issue back to state legislatures yeah. and potentially to Congress too. I mean, there's an argument that Congress can still legislate on this as well, but they're literally making, handing this back to the democratic process rather than 50 years of the judiciary, basically usurping the legislative role when right. it comes to abortion policy. And so they didn't rule that abortion is illegal. They didn't rule that abortion is legal. They said, the Constitution doesn't have anything to say about this. And so really, neither should we. So we're going to vacate Roe. We're going to vacate casing, give it back to the legislatures so the people can come up with the right policy. And I mean, that is actually democracy. Yeah, <laughs> so you, have, I mean, you hear people the, saying, democracy's dying, democracy's dying. No, it's not. The Supreme Court just expanded democracy in public policy. No matter right. what you think about it, that's what the effect of this was. Exactly. Exactly right. So instead of one big national fight, they've got to fight 50 or less because some states have already decided. But right. uh, uh, but uh, that's, it's, you're right. It's the way it works. The, the state government is much closer to people than Washington. Washington is like on another planet, I think, the way most people look at it. And that was an, uh, a feeling that Trump played on so effectively in 2016. Washington was so isolated and so disconnected. And both parties were, he said. And, yep. uh, uh, and it worked for him electorally. Yeah, but I mean, I think the point of your column is 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 spot on because I've been frustrated the last few days watching all these people say that, you know, Fourth of July is meaningless now because the Supreme Court, yeah, you know, you know, you know, pissed on their Wheaties or whatever you want to say, however you want to put it, right? I mean, it's just <laughs> that's a great line. Well, you know, we used to have election seasons and parties. <laughs> Excuse me. Parties trotted out their issues that made us into two camps, us and them. And uh, one of us won. And then the election season was over. Right but now, thanks to 24 hour news cycle and 24 uh, seven and um, uh, social media, it's nonstop campaigns. Uh, uh, Obama started this, uh, basically. Um, he had a campaign organization going the entire time. And in fact, he never turned it over to the party. Uh, he just changed its name. And it's a place to park his cronies. So uh, it's a very Chicago kind of thing. But uh, we've had these eternal campaigns. And it's us versus them. And you can't accept that somebody has a different opinion. And uh, you talk. It, it's almost like I said in a column, it's almost like I talk, therefore I am. 
Uh, so there's no listening. There's very little listening going on, and there's no convincing going on. It's just I'm going to yell at you, my, stand, my side, and I'm going to yell over you when you try to say yours. Um, and it's sad. Uh, it's, it's corrosive to a uh, democratic spirit, a sense of community spirit that right. we're all in this together. The media has not helped. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the last time we kind of had this national uh, unity feeling, uh, almost unanimous, was in 2011 on, uh, on 912. Uh, and, you know, Congress singing out on the steps together and everyone feeling that they, uh, they were Americans and we were under attack. And it's unfortunate that the unity came from such a tragedy, but uh, yeah. we, we need to work something else out where we're not in this 24-7, four-year uh, partisan cycle. I kind of think that handing abortion back to the legislatures might be a good start, actually, yeah. because I think that that will actually, it will be poisonous for a while longer. But I think eventually when people get used to the idea that you're going to have to legislate policy on this, um, you're going to get to some compromises on it because the vast majority of American people are in the middle on this question. Um, I'm not, by the way, and I'll say it right off the bat, I'm not. But um, uh, but I recognize that the vast majority of Americans are. And what you're going to find, even in a state like Texas, is that the popular pressure for some limited access to abortion is going to be just too much. And the state's eventually going to have something that is a first trimester limited uh, under certain conditions for adults only, right? So without, you know, or, or minors with parental involvement, which is about where the vast majority of Americans are at. And, um, and people aren't going to be happy with that. But the fact that you do it through legislatures, you do it through the popular process, makes it a lot easier. And I'll tell you, my, my, my experience with this actually is in Minnesota with same-sex marriage, where we had, the, we, we had uh, a constitutional amendment that was going to enshrine marriage as one man, one woman. The Catholic Church was involved in this, the evangelical churches, even some of the Lutheran churches were involved in this. And it didn't pass. It was an amendment. It didn't pass. It was a referendum. I'm sorry. It didn't pass. Um, and then the next session of the legislature, the legislature turned around and um, they didn't put it in the, con I don't believe they put made it a constitutional amendment, but they just passed a statute saying that the state will recognize same-sex marriages. And it passed and everybody had their say. And I can tell you that the losing side wasn't happy about it, but everybody recognized that everybody had their say and, and, it went through the democratic process and that's the way it should have been. And so it became sort of, it, this is before Obergefell, by the way, in Minnesota, this took place before Oberger, Obergefell, excuse me. And it was, you know, again, the losing side wasn't terribly happy about it, but everybody understood that it was pretty much a fight was over at that point. And oh. uh, you can move on to other topics, other policies. And you get a whole lot more say at the state level than you do at the federal level when it's a Supreme Court. You have no say. That's right. That's right. Now, I still think Obergefell was wrong. I don't necessarily, I mean, and, and look, I mean, I, I, I'm not talking about the policy. I just, I'm talking about the Supreme Court doing what it did. And, it, and to me, it is an awful lot like Roe. And I understand what Clarence Thomas was saying in his 
concurrence that they should go back and revisit a whole raft of these decisions. But they're not going to do it because nobody's suing to overturn a burger. <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody's even talking about that, right? After Roe, I mean, you immediately had all sorts of people trying to challenge the law in Roe and going back through the course and trying to you know, make this fight that was going on for 50 years. It's been what? Um, I want to say, has it been eight years since Obergefell? I think it was 2014, right? And I don't think there's a, I don't think there's been a single challenge in federal court <laughs> that has tried to, that has even bothered. I mean, nobody, it's okay. You know, no, it's not going to get there because nobody's going to take it there. Abor abortion's different because it involves killing a human being. And, um, and people recognize that. So, yes, I think that to your point, I think it's a great point. Um, once we're Pat, once we're out of the stupid season, in the, in the wake of the Dobbs decision. And I think we're actually almost all the way out of that. The only people who are still screaming about this are the activists. It's not moving the polls. It's not having any impact on uh, the electoral outcomes that we've seen in other, in, in primary races just in this past week had no effect on stuff, even though it was 24, it was being covered 24 seven by the media. Um, I think once we're out of the stupid season on this, it, it 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 is the first step in drawing some of that poison back out of the body politic and making democracy work the way it's supposed to work to exactly. create a self-governing republic. And coincidentally, but fortuitously, uh, the decision came at the beginning of summer when a lot of people tune out of news and and uh, they go on vacation. Yeah, the other thing too was it was leaked. You know, the the, the controlling opinion on this uh, was leaked. The only thing that changed is that Alito um, added material uh, to address the dissents and some of the and, and especially the Roberts concurrence, the semi concurrence from Roberts. Um, and so it, it was expanded, but it's still the same. It's still the same opinion. It's still the and same. Remember when it was leaked, it was a work in progress. It wasn't right. the final decision. This is what they do. They pass it around and everybody uh, comments on it. Uh, uh, yep. Sometimes newspapers do that. It drove me crazy when I was doing working for them. Well, speaking because of nobody agree, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people feel they have to make a criticism or a suggestion to prove that they're there. And it's not necessarily it's like fashion or education, fashion and education policies. It's not that it makes it better. It's just a little different. And somebody can feel like they had an impact. It doesn't make it any better. And that's something that annoyed the hell out of me when yep. I was when I was the victim of it. Oh, speaking, but I'm no longer a victim. You've never been a victim, Andrew yeah. Malcolm. You're you're the prince of Twitter and the regent that's of Red correct. State. Royalty gets its way. That's right. R.H.I.P. Rank has its privileges. Um, <laughs> speaking of rank, um, the top-ranked Catholic, <laughs> oh, the, Pope Francis wants everyone to know. By the way, I'm not retiring. This has yeah. been. I mean, this is the speculation on this has been absolutely hilarious. I've been sitting back here, you know, saying, guys, 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 none of this means anything. I know that you want it to mean something because it sells. <laughs> But you're you're literally making stuff up, and I and, and this time this well, time back I got, up back up and tell us what what you saw oh, happening. So Pope Francis was going to pay a visit to um, the shrine of a, of the of the Pope that 
that last retired before Pope Benedict, like 600 years or so ago, as part of something else that he's doing in the area. And because Benedict did the same thing right before he announced his retirement, everybody says, well, this is the big signal. Pope Francis is going to retire, blah, 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 blah. And okay, so who's next? What does it mean? Pope Francis is retiring. What does that mean? Or may, may be retiring, right? And um, and as it turns out, um, Pope Francis uh. on Monday <laughs> said, you know, I, I'm not resigning. I don't know where you guys got this, but <laughs> I'm I'm really not resigning. And Reuters covered it. And, and, you know, Andrew sent this over to me because he's always been amused by this. Um, yeah, there, there really, there was really no basis for this other than the fact that um, Pope Francis was temporarily in a wheelchair because of some infirmities that he has. And, um, and so Reuters actually sat down and asked him. <laughs> imagine they, that. Imagine that. Yes. Um, in an exclusive inter interview in his Vatican residence, Francis also denied rumors that he had cancer, joking that his doctors didn't tell me anything about it and, um, and said that, no, he's not, uh, he is not retiring. Um, so what you're saying, Ed, is that people waiting outside for the smoke are going to be waiting for a while. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> they're going to be waiting. A, they're going to be waiting a good long while. And, and unfortunately, that 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 also includes the otherwise fantastic Megan Kelly, who almost it's almost a satire. She was there with their, she was there at the Vatican with their family <laughs> and taking a tour of the Vatican including the Sistine Chapel, right? So she's on she's on the the A tour, right? Um because there are B tours. You have to be careful about who you tour with at the Vatican. And um her tour guide informed her that it's very unusual to see cardinals and bishops around, <laughs> around St. Peter's Square. <laughs> either her tour guide just started working that day or was pulling their leg, right? Or Megan's pulling ours. And then there was a priest at the Sistine Chapel who was who blessed the people in the Sistine Chapel, and Megan Kelly was telling people on her Instagram thing, well, "That's I'm told that's very unusual." Um, no, <laughs> and that proves he's resigning. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was sort of like, they, well, they say that's very unusual, so maybe there's something to these these rumors. Um, having worked briefly, and I'm no means an expert at this. But I, I, I have worked a couple of times um, at, in the press office at the Vatican, and I can tell you from personal experience <laughs> that it is the world's largest collection of black cassocks and uh, magenta and red uh, uh, zucchettas <laughs> in the entire world. The, it, you know, if you go to nearby um, uh, Piazza del Risorgimento, which is um, it's just right kind of just on the outside of the Vatican, where there's some really nice um, little trattorias and some cheapy places to eat as well. And, and the place is swarming with <laughs> bishops and cardinals and priests. So um, yeah, it's a, a, a day without a, a bishop at the Vatican is like a day without sunshine. I'm telling you that it's <laughs> not a sign, not a sign, but it is part of sort of like the speculative impulse that people, that people in the media get. And it's just kind of silly, right? Yeah, well, it's silly. And it's, you know, it's like people, the, this is some time ago when some of my colleagues were asking about how to how to deal with Twitter. And I said, you think of Twitter as as little sticky notes. You know, I mean, there's nothing lasting or or uh, impactful, enduring about about tweets. 
they're here, they're gone, poof. And so don't get all uptight about them. Uh, but now that we have them, people feel that they can offer an opinion, which is fine. I mean, it, it's okay, but we didn't used to have so many <laughs> opinions Yeah, uh, and not all of them informed. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of that Mary Tyler Moore episode. Um, and you and I have talked about this before. It's one of my favorite scenes in this where Mary Tyler Moore is having to, she's, she got a tip from a stringer at a, um, at a teacher's union strike that the, that the strike was over and nobody else had that information. So they, and, uh, Lou decides to run, run the, uh, you know, run the, um, run the story, even though it might, you know, it's totally single sourced and nobody's sure they can't confirm it. And he starts telling this anecdote, you know, I remember one Sunday morning I was working as the, as the, as the desk guy. And I got this hot tip about, about, uh, uh, a, a Japanese attack and I couldn't find anybody to call and I couldn't confirm the story. Oh, and, man. and I, I just made a decision that we're going to run this. And so that morning we ran the story that the Japanese had just bombed San Diego. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and every, I mean, everybody in the room, I mean, it's, it's a great scene. You have to watch this scene. Yeah, and I yeah. love this show anyway, right? And everybody in the room is like, you can see everybody's like building up to it. And when he says San Diego, he goes, oh. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> oh, crap. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, when, when I was new in the business, this is a long, long time ago, um, an old timer told me uh, on election night one time, he said, you're going you're gonna to get a lot of pressure from New York, from the desk to call an election. Who's a winner, projected winner. But he said, you can always call an election, but you can never uncall. You can that never election. uncall. You can, all, you can also not uncall an attack on San Diego. That's Jap- right. You can That's right. You, you cannot uncall a Japanese bombing run on San Diego. Um, Editor, editor's note: clarification. You know that report we had that San Diego was bombed. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> there was a great tweet. Where was it? It was uh, well, it was on Instagram, but it it was you know that that iconic picture of Mel Gibson all painted up in Braveheart with the blue face just before the battle, and he's screaming. And the caption underneath in big letters was, "Never mind." <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of movies, I actually okay. went to a movie for the first yes. time since December, 2019. And it's not that I didn't want to go to the movie theater. <laughs> Frankly, I just didn't see a movie that was worth it. The only one that I, I do regret now passing on is Dune, which I, I saw when it got to, you know, home theater and it's fantastic. I, I really enjoyed Dune, but um, so we went and saw Top Gun Maverick this weekend and it was, it was fantastic. It was really good. It was worth going back to the theater for. So you know now we're now we're, well, we're that's comfortable good. and your review got uh, got a lot of traction. Um, um, I I retweeted it. I said Mikey likes it. I saw that. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. you know it's and I know the movie had been out for you know about five weeks before I did the review. So it's you know it's it's not you know a yeah, super but, timely yeah, review. But okay, but 
but reviews are like columns, you know, I mean, they're, they're personal. They're, they're what's you go to them because of the person who's writing it. Either you value their opinion or you're curious about it. Uh, and it, there's no universal review. When I was in journalism school, which is even longer ago, um, uh, we had a critical writing instructor and he had us go to something. I happened to pick uh, a play at the Northwestern uh, Speech School, which is where a lot of people, uh, Dreyfus and, and a whole lot of Charlton Heston, a whole bunch of actors went. So I went and I wrote a review about the play and you turned it in and he graded them. And then the next assignment was whatever you said about the play, turn it around. <laughs> so if you like to play, you had to write a critical, no, this is a terrible, terrible thing. Oh, that's thing. interesting. That's inter yeah, it that's was interesting. And good it was exercise. A, it, yeah, it was a very good lesson in how you can, it varies in how you can be so subjective that, that uh, and you were forced to come out with an opposite opinion. Uh, I really, I really look back on that. Uh, I don't remember what I said. I probably liked it because that was easy. Uh, uh, but um, uh, it was a, it was a good lesson in in how you can marshal arguments either way. Yep. Yep. And, you know, uh, I, I, I got to tell you, there's two pitfalls in writing reviews. Well, there's actually a number of them, but two main ones for me. One is that you fall in love with writing really nasty reviews because <laughs> yeah. it's fun to write a, a really critical review because you really get to break out all the tools, right? <laughs> and it's easy because it's easy to criticize stuff, right? Yeah. It's easy to yeah. nitpick something to death. Um, and the other thing, the other pitfall- and, and to show how much you know. Yes. Yes. Because it becomes very much a, a, a self-inflating exercise, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, I think of that in terms of, I can't think of the actor's name, the, um, the theater critic in All About Eve, right? I can't think of, he's a great actor and he did a great job in that movie. But, um, I mean, it was really all about himself. You know, he, it was all about how brilliant he was and how he could mold the theater, the theater could not exist without him. And I, I think it's, it's easy to fall into that trap when you're writing reviews. But the other trap is only seeing things that you think you're going to like so that all of your reviews kind of come out sounding sort of, I don't know, promotional. Yeah. <laughs> this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's why the credibility is so important. And, and not just in reviews, but in politics and reporting. People, yep. even though you don't know it, people look for certain bylines and they follow those bylines and they give you credibility or, or critical. And if I had I had a couple of favorites on the New York Times. John Noble Wilford was the space writer and anything he wrote, I would read that. I mean, I don't I don't care what he's writing about uh, vacation or anything. I'm I'm reading it because he always included something I didn't know about space. Um, so the credibility is important on, uh, on reviews and that's the credibility in news coverage that we're, that the media these days has blown up. Yep. Yep. 
All right. Well, on that note, we got to talk about the jokes of the week, and hopefully they're not from my call, not from my review of Maverick. Right, 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 right. Mikey likes it. Um, well, these are all old, and I'm running low, so uh, I hope they're not repeats. But Jimmy Fallon said, a man in boxer shorts shut down an L.A. freeway when he climbed an exit sign, hung political banners, vaped, danced, and shouted from a bullhorn. He's already being described as the Democrats' best hope in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Michael Avenatti. That's Michael Avenatti, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Conan, uh, obviously, this is an old one. He says, NSA leaker Edward Snowden has been staying the last two days in Moscow's airport, not because he's hiding, but because he's flying on United. <laughs> and, surprised, uh, surprised he can find a flight <laughs> yeah yeah uh and seth meyer said um this is a replay he said uh, hillary clinton joined instagram this afternoon and somehow she's already deleted thousands of photos that's amazing <laughs> it's amazing she's the most efficient politician we've ever had uh, delete 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 and delete. that's something that hunter biden should have done galaine maxwell got 20 years in prison she's still not talking about she's still not talking about uh, jeffrey epstein's black book that makes me wonder it makes me wonder when uh, galaine maxwell is going to uh is going to be found, you know, dead by suicide. I'm just joking. Uh, she, I, yeah, I think she Epstein, stabbed, herself Epstein, in the, yeah. stabbed herself in the back. 15 times. Yeah. 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 yeah um, I mean, I, I I actually think Epstein did kill himself. I just think that they weren't particularly concerned whether he did or not. Um, but it is interesting. She made it through the trial. She got sentenced to 20 years. We'll see if... Uh, See how long they last. Well, we'll see how long it takes before she starts trying to deal. <laughs> hey, let's talk. Let's talk some of the. Let's talk about some of the guys that were were involved in this. She hasn't done that yet, but uh, they didn't come yeah. to her rescue either. So we'll see how long that lasts. All right, Andrew Malcolm, of course, is the prince of Twitter at ah Malcolm on Twitter, the regent of redstate.com. Go read his uh, great stuff. By the way, we didn't even we didn't even mention. Um, that he's got a new podcast up over there. Uh, Can you handle a sign of hope this week? So go check that out as well. Malcolm on the right, episode 16. Uh, Go find out what he has to say about the sign of hope this week. Andrew Malcolm, thanks so much for being with us today. You bet. Thanks, Edward. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week, buddy. Happy Independence Day. Yeah, same to you. All right, stay tuned. We're going to come back with more from the Ed Morrissey Show right after this. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me now from the Substack, where he is now writing, Paul Mirangoff joins us again to talk a little bit about what happened uh, in the past week or so uh, regarding the January 6th committee, Cassidy, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, the mistakes, where it goes from here. And, uh, and uh, Paul, first off, remind everybody where they can find your Substack um, that you and Bill Otis are writing right now. It's called Ringside at the Reckoning. Probably a little bit too long for a title. I thought it was catchy at the time. Now I think I should have just said Ringside, but it's Ringside at the Reckoning at Substack.com. There you go. And uh, a lot of good people are at Substack these days. So 
Barry Weiss is at Substack. Uh, Bernie Goldberg is at pa- well, he's at Patreon, uh, but I believe um, Barry Weiss is at Substack. It's a it's a pretty good platform for people to go independent and and to uh, do as much work as they want to do and and still get some compensation for it. I saw that Ann Coulter just joined. Yes, I did see that too. That's interesting. You would think that um, you would think that Ann Coulter would would have had the resources to do something a little bit more commercial, right? Um, set up her own shop, but why not? I mean, Substack is there. Why not do it that way? Absolutely, and uh, you know, depending on how many people she brings, I assume she'll bring a lot. Uh, it, it'll be a good uh, business enterprise for her as well. Yeah, no kidding. And and you know, she's got a great draw, so she should be able to bring quite a few people now. We were talking, um, I, when I'm introducing you about this, we were talking about uh, something that you wrote regarding the January 6th committee, the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony, and how it's kind of started to fall apart, at least in part. Um, and I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I, you know, and I haven't even played one on television. Um, and I rarely stay at a Holiday Inn Express. And even I know better than to have your star witness who's actually got uh, at least potentially valuable eyewitness testimony uh, to lead her into hearsay <laughs> and, and, you know, and speculation and innuendo on direct examination, no less, not even on cross-examination. I mean, that whole thing was strange. It, it really was because, you know, hearsay is fine if you can back it up. But, and I assumed when, when she testified that the people who she was, who, whose conversations she was testifying about and whose firsthand knowledge she was purporting to, no, <laughs> had been interviewed by the committee, which I think they had been, yep. and had backed her up on this very point. Otherwise, there's no there's no need to get into that. I mean, you get nice headlines, you know, uh, <clears throat> Trump grabbing at uh, hit the wheel and grabbing at the throat of a, a Secret Service agent, but it was, wasn't necessary testimony. It doesn't really add anything to the underlying issue of his responsibility, if any, for January 6th. The important point about that whole limo incident, and I think it's undisputed, was that he was furious at not being able to lead the crowd, to be driven to the Capitol and lead the crowd. If that's all they needed to get out of her, but they couldn't resist, you know, going, going for the going for the knockout punch. Um, but they didn't have, or they may not have had, it doesn't look like they had what they needed to back it up. Well, I'm not even sure that that was, I mean, okay, so he's angry that he's not leading the crowd down there. That's I'm not even sure that that's terribly germane. I think the the bigger issue that she testified to was that Trump knew that people in the crowd were armed before he sent them down to the right. Capitol. And, and she said that she personally heard him tell the Secret Service to take down the magnetometers because if the, if the people in that crowd were carrying arms, he wasn't the target. And, and he wasn't afraid of that. That to me, I mean, it's, that's still not necessarily enough legally for an incitement charge, but certainly politically. And I, I mean, this is really a political case that the January 6th committee is building. And um, and there was one other point, too, about the uh, she had um, been a witness to Mark Meadows and I think maybe one or two other members of Congress who were asking, uh, who were at least asking about getting pardons uh, regarding anything that happened on January 6th. And that's I mean, that's certainly substantive testimony because a request for pardons indicates some sort of guilty conscience, at least arguably can 
indicate some sort of guilty conscience. So those are really the big points that Cassidy Hutchinson was making. And so I don't understand if you want to get the other stuff into the record, why you don't call Tony or Nato, or uh, I think the other person was Engel who was in the car to deliver that testimony, because that would have been direct testimony. And now the secret service is saying that they want to testify before the committee because yeah, presumably they're they're unhappy about what was said, and presumably they're going to contradict that part of it. You have to know what Arnato and Engel would say. It's it's kind of the, the equivalent of on cross examination. You don't ask a question if you don't know the answer. Right. On direct examination, you don't put somebody on if to testify about what other people did, unless you know what they're going to say about what they did. Uh, if you didn't, if you don't have firsthand knowledge. Right. The other thing, in addition to the two things you said that are most critical, I, th- I thought was um, her overhearing um, Meadows and, and White House Counsel Cipollone saying, you know, Mike Pence, you know, I don't care if they hang Mike Pence or something to that. Yes. Effect. Yes. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah. Then she doesn't have, uh, you know, she unless Cipollone testifies and they're trying to get him to and, and agrees with her. It's going to be it's all going to rest on her credibility and her credibility might well end up being shot once the Secret Service folks uh, end up uh, getting their version on the record. If that's what happens, and it looks like it might. Yeah, I mean, because part of the problem here is that while she's an eyewitness to those things, to the direct testimony that she was giving, right, uh, rather than the hearsay that that she that she was uh, also passing along, Um uh, it there's only at least so far as we've seen there's only been a single she's the only point of corroboration right and that that's not a problem right as long as you can maintain the credibility of a witness and Cassidy Hutchinson doesn't appear to have an axe to grind she was working for you know Meadows and so she was working within what you could call Trump world and so doesn't have a history of uh, of you know public repudiation and, and and all that kind of thing. So she wouldn't make a bad witness in that case. But the problem is, is that because unless they've got some other people that can testify to this, Paul, she she's the only point of corroboration on this. And if her credibility is undermined, it really becomes more or less worthless, at least in in terms of a court proceeding. I would say politically speaking, it's it's a little bit different. But in terms of the legal process, a prosecutorial process, it become it really just undermines the value of that witness. Yeah, and even politically, um, what the committee yeah. doesn't want, and what they're really trying to do by calling all these Republicans, especially, is to move the needle with, with people who are undecided or or who are pro-Trump to, to a degree. And um, it seemed like Hutchinson might well have accomplished that because you know in the, in the immediate aftermath of her testimony because. She did seem credible. She doesn't seem to have an axe to grind, like, like you just said, Ed. But um, if if it becomes a matter of her testifying to stuff with her credibility in tatters, then sure, the you know the Democrats are are, are uh, the, the Trump haters are going to say, I think she's credible, and she might well be. I mean, it's possible that Ornato isn't won't be telling the truth if he testifies, right? But it's just going to break down on on party and ideological lines again, which is what the committee was hoping to break through might have done a better job of breaking through if they allowed a few uh, Republicans who, who don't hate Trump onto the committee. Um, or if they'd allow, in particular, Jordan, and, and I guess it was Banks, who, who they Jordan beat. Jordan Banks, yeah. And that led, and that led uh, McCarthy to say, well, if you won't take them, we're not going to serve up anybody else. 
that might have helped. But but I think even without that, they were seemed to be on the verge of of winning some folk undecided folks over. But that's all in jeopardy now, thanks to an unforced error. Yeah, truly unforced error. You're gonna you're getting at something here that I was arguing as well. Um, and by the way, you should go to uh, ringside at the reckoning to read what what Paul and Bill Otis are writing are uh, are writing about this. But if this had been a truly adversarial process in court, right? First off, if this had been in court, that other testimony probably wouldn't have been allowed. Her 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 direct testimony as to what she herself witnessed would have been. I would be very difficult for me to see how you I know that there's exceptions to hearsay, but I don't think the situation that you have here would have cleared that. I think that a judge would have said, no, if you want to get the testimony about what happened in the car, you're going to have to produce a witness to a direct, you know, a witness with direct testimony about that. Am, am I correct about that? I think so. So the, the, you mentioned not having the uh, more Republicans, Jim uh, Jordan or Banks, or even just some other Republicans on there who would have been naturally oriented to an adversarial position, not necessarily, you know, you know, corruptly. So, and I'm not even suggesting that the reason why you have an adversarial role on these uh, committees, especially select committees that are doing investigations is because it keeps the other side thinking about what the response is going to be when you do something. It really um, it, it really forces a significant uh, risk of, of backfire uh, if they try to go overboard because the other side is going to is, is going to have its say. And I think that these guys just really got caught up in having full control of this and never I don't think they're even considering the issues that uh, we're talking about until it blew up in their face, they weren't considering it. I think that's probably right. I mean, uh, Liz Cheney tried to tried to uh, anticipate um, perhaps contrary testimony by Engel when she said, okay, you heard this conversation, you heard uh, Renato say this to you about what happened in the car. Did Engel ever contradict it? But that's not good enough. And I think you're absolutely right as to the psychology of this. I can't, I don't, I was an attorney for 35 years and, uh, you know, I never had a case where there was no opposing counsel and where my co-counsel was presiding over this, over the, uh, proceedings. So I can't say that, that in that situation, I wouldn't become a bit complacent too. But I'd like to think that, you know, your judgment wouldn't completely dissipate in those circumstances. It looked like they had been very careful. Uh, up until that point. Um, but I think you're right about the psychology of it. They just got over overconfident um, because they didn't feel anybody was going to contradict them. What can I say? I mean, you know, it's uh, as I'm well wondering as if, I'm wondering if you've been in life. I'm wondering if you ever fantasize about being able to go into court and, and not having an, any opposing counsel and just being sure, able to. I used to fantasize. <laughs> yeah. I used to fantasize about playing tennis without a net too, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. So, Paul, the other point that came up, right, and this was um, this was another point that was on direct testimony. Uh, not, I mean, that's all direct testimony. I'm using the wrong term here, but I'm, eyewitness testimony, I think, is a better way of putting it, rather than speculative or or hearsay. Had to do with the memo that was written, and the memo was. Um, I forget what the memo was, but there was a memo that was written and 
Liz Cheney asked Cassidy Hutchinson, this was in your handwriting, right? And she said, yes. And then a White House attorney later said, I'm the one who wrote that. A former, you know, former White House attorney, obviously right. not in this administration. I'm the one who wrote that. Furthermore, I told the committee that I was the one who wrote that. The committee yeah. knows this. I mean, that's that's not just going to Cassidy Hutchinson's credibility. It's also going to get the credibility of the committee itself. Yeah. And by the way, that attorney, Hirsch, Hirschfeld or Hirschfeld? Hirsch, been, Hirschfeld, yeah, pretty, I think it's Hirschfeld or Hirschenfeld or something like that. Yeah. Pretty hostile to, to, to Trump in the, in the clips that they play. You know, he's the one who said, who said, uh, I told Eastman, you better get yourself a good criminal lawyer. I mean, he has not been uh, a pro-Trump witness. Um, and I think, he, you know, I think that makes him all the more credible. They can, you know, with Ornato, they can say, well, he, you know, he's a Trump guy. Trump promoted him from the Secret Service to deputy uh, chief of staff. This guy doesn't have that. Um, that. That is, again, an unforced error. I think standing by itself, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you would just chalk it off as a, as a mistake. But with, on on Hutchinson's part, on the committee's part, it's pretty inexcusable. But coupled with the other credibility issues, yeah, it's like a it's like a double whammy. Yeah, um, and again, unforced errors. It's and it's of a piece, I think, of how that how that testimony came about because this was not a day. This was on Thursday, I believe. Maybe or, I mean, yesterday was Thursday. It was on Tuesday, Tuesday. or what? Tuesday. And um, it wasn't on the schedule. It was like within like 16, 17 hours. This had suddenly appeared on the schedule. They were rushing every, to let everybody know that they were going to do this. It was like some sort of, they had some sort of breaking news. Um, and apparently part of this was because Cassidy Hutchinson had got herself new attorneys and decided that she wanted to share a little bit more about what she knew than what her previous attorneys wanted her to do. Um, but I mean, this was a, this was a rush job in the first place. And I can understand why you do that. If you had like a real smoking gun, but a, I don't think this was a real smoking. It was certainly, it was certainly, um, significant. The parts that where she was an eyewitness were significant, but a, I don't think it was a smoking gun. It probably should have been prepared better. And B, I think that that whole rush, you know, the, the sort of, you know, urgent, urgent, urgent thing is another way in which this sort of has, I mean, the committee's really starting to, starting to build itself some serious credibility issues, even with people who might be inclined to be sympathetic to what they were doing. I think so. And yeah, the old, the old adage, too good to check comes to mind. They right. need to this is awesome. I don't know if it was awesome, but it was good stuff in, in my opinion. Maybe not a smoking gun, but you know something that, right. that really would have advanced the ball for them. And they just said, "Well, you know, let's get it out there." You know, and and uh, yeah, an unforced error due to you know being over overjoyed and falling in love with with this particular testimony. Yeah, yeah, and I think again, if you had an adversarial process in place, it would have probably um, given them some pause about doing that and at least slowed it down to where they could make sure that they had their ducks in a row. I think so. Yeah. So Paul, I mean, where do you think this is going? Uh, I, I, I hear a lot of people saying, Oh, this is the, you know, they're building a case for the department of justice to charge Donald Trump. 
And I'm looking at this and saying, this isn't really a, a legal case. I don't think they're really building a legal case. And I think if they were trying to, they'd actually be actively interfering with whatever the Department of Justice is doing right now because they're putting all the potential witnesses on television, which is something that traditionally the Department of Justice is very unhappy when Congress does that and in an investigation that they're doing. My guess is that they're really just trying to build a political case, not for this year, but for 2024, trying to get... Uh, trying to make Trump so toxic that Republicans will just decide he's not worth the effort. I agree with you, Ed, and that raises a question I'd love to hear your take on. Uh, I don't think I've seen it, although you, you may have. What Arguably, the Democrats are, are, the committee is helping the Republicans purge themselves of Donald Trump. Um, does the committee want to, want to do that? Does it think does it want to, who are they taking into account who they want to run against, who they want their Democrat to run against in 2024? Are they saying, we don't care. We just, you know, as a, as a, we just need to get this guy out of politics, damn the consequences. I mean, I'm having trouble thinking why they are so intent. Uh, I understand why Liz Cheney is, of course, and her, and her partner uh, from Illinois, but I don't understand why, uh, why the Democrats on the committee want to take down Trump so badly. I wonder what you think about that. I really honestly think it's because they think he's going to try to run again in 2024 and they want to kneecap him, which is fine. I mean, I mean, I, I don't think that that's really a legitimate use of, of house committees, but it's certainly not unprecedented. Maybe it's unprecedented in terms of actual presidential electoral politics, but I mean, this type of stuff is done by, committees quite a bit where oh, they go sure. out. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, let's not kid ourselves. Most of these select committees, I mean, you can go back to Benghazi, for instance, which was clearly trying to lay blame both on Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And everybody knew Hillary Clinton was going to run for the nomination, likely get it in 2016. Would rather run against uh, Trump, uh, would rather run against DeSantis than Trump because- no. <laughs> By, and by kneecapping, by kneecapping Trump, they're, they're, if they're successful, which, as we've just been discussing, they may not be, may well not be. But if they're successful, that would, would assist DeSantis and would imply that they would rather run against DeSantis than Trump. And I'm, I don't think that's what they want. I don't think that that's really what they're aiming for. I think they're going on the, on the assumption that Trump is just going to win the nomination. But I think what they're, what, I think there's, there's a number of problems with making that assumption. And I'll, I'll, I'll run them down and you and I can discuss them a little bit. First off, Trump's going to be 78 in, um, in, in 2024. We've just had a 78 year old elected to this office. It didn't work out well. Um, number two, Trump's entire orientation now is all about 2020. It's all a grievance. It's all about him. Voters, really aren't going to care about that in 2024. They're going to want to know what they're going to do for the next four years, next eight years, next 12 years. And then at the present, they want a president. They're going to look for a, a nominee and and then, a, a you know, in the general election, a president who's focused on their problems right now, not his problems four years ago. And here's the third reason. And I think this one is maybe even going to be more resonant within the uh, GOP uh, slash conservative donor community. They're going to want somebody who can run for a second term. And Donald Trump can't run for a second term. They're going to elect the 78-year-old guy, live with all the chaos that comes with it, 
at the end of all that, they're still going to have to come up with a new guy to run in four years. I mean, it's almost like electing a lame duck right from day one. Um, and certainly after the midterms. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of political strategic sense. And so I think if if the, I, certainly I think you're right, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, they want Trump gone. And they would like to see all the people affiliated with Trump marginalized too. So there's, that's, that's their, that's their um, motivations. But I actually think that um, Republicans, I think a lot of Republicans are going to look at this and say, you know, we're, we're, we think Trump really got screwed and this, this house committee isn't, um, isn't, uh, you know, credible. And, and we think that this is all just a put up job, but you know, on the other hand, <laughs> we need somebody who can do two terms, somebody who is who, somebody who wasn't born, you know, before rock and roll was invented and <laughs> somebody who can, somebody who, you know, we can rely on to stay awake at nights. Um, so yeah, maybe Ron DeSantis is, is, is the better bet or Glenn Youngkin, who's 55 years old or somebody like that, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that because I actually honestly think that after these midterms are over, there's going to be a, 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 a much more robust reassessment of where this party stands vis-a-vis Trump. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think, and I think if the committee can, can maintain or regain its credibility, it will, it will help that process along. Um, uh, as speaking to someone who was born um, before rock and roll was invented, I, I don't, uh, I don't hold that against, I don't hold that against Trump. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there, there, there will be, uh, there, there is already starting to be a reassessment. But I still think, you know, that that it's maybe fifty-fifty or better that Trump will be the nominee, um, unless the committee move, can move can help move the needle. And I'm, I'm still not sure why they're trying to. Why they're why they're trying to do it? I, I guess it's just kind of you know hatred of Trump, Trump derangement, and and maybe a sense that that he will be the nominee uh, and a lack of confidence in the factors that that you cite. But I think I think they're all good reasons for for a reassessment, and I think there will be a, a reassessment. You know, actually, and I'll say this: um, I think that the committee is actually in, in that sense. If that's their idea, it's actually going to backfire. They're still making politics all about Trump. The best thing to do with this would have been just to let the Department of Justice do whatever it was going to do, leave it alone, let him stew on the sidelines while Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, other Republicans um, rise up. I actually think that if there's a reassessment process, this committee is actively going to retard it and um, it's going to make it tougher because it's going to force... Um, a lot of Trump's base to dig their heels in and just demand that, you know, as a, as a matter of justice, he gets his, he gets a chance to, um, he gets another chance at, at the office. Um, well, but I don't think that will last long. I don't think that will last long either though. Yeah. I think if the committee was doing a, a, a better job, yeah, the Trump people would dig their heels in, but they're going to, you know, they're going to support him anyway. But a lot of people are just going to say, well, I don't know. I can't sort all this out, but we just need to get past this. We, we can't be relitigating this. And if we nominate Trump, we, we will be relitigating this. Yeah. I'll leave you. I'll give you one more bit of, of hearsay, completely unreliable. I think I, I know a guy, this, whenever you hear that, it's, I know a guy who, who lives, who lives down there in, in Trump land and, and who says he, you know, he's met with Trump and he says that he heard Trump when her, when Trump learned that all three, that, that, these hearings were to be carried by all three networks. His response was, 
I'll be on all three networks. It's going to be about me on all three networks. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't vouch for that, but I don't discount it either. And and that goes to what you're saying. Um, you know, it, it, he wants it to be all about him, and the committee is making it all about him. I, and I think so. And I think you know, I, I think back to what happened in 2015 when you know they were carrying all yeah all the networks were carrying his rallies live as sort of supposedly as sort of a you know a warning um and all they did was just again make politics center politics on Donald Trump and and the democrats did the same thing everything they talked about was Donald Trump yeah and um i think that if we'd had 2 years of just everybody ignoring Donald Trump um then you'd be farther along that path where republicans are going to start looking at it rationally i but i think no matter what after the midterms are over, that's when that's going to happen. They're going to look at 2024 and say, do we really want to go back for a guy who's only good for one term, who's 78 years old, who has all this chaos and baggage and is is completely focused in the rear on the rearview mirror? Or do we want somebody who is fresh, who can still speak to that same base, who can um, who, who can potentially run for two terms and is young enough to... Um, to uh, underscore just how old Democrats have gotten. That and I think is the question. And if it's a case, and in DeSantis's case, maybe someone who's just won a big victory in what used to be a, a completely 50 50 state and is still, you know, not a gimme for, for yep. uh, Republicans. Yeah. Although I think it's trending into, into gimme status these days. And so, yeah, I, I think that I, I actually think that even if the committee is slowing that process down with this, I think that the the reassessment is going to happen anyway. So, um, yeah, we should talk about that after the midterms, though. I mean, we'll talk we'll talk between now and the midterms too, but we should talk about that definitely after the midterms because I think that that's I think that's when everybody is going to say, okay, look, <laughs> okay, you know, um, we we really do need to find some some fresh blood here, and we need to we need to shake this out. We need to get past this. Let's find somebody who can do eight years looking forward, and that somebody can't be somebody who has already got one term uh, under their belt. So, uh, one other thought too before I let you go, because you're a smart guy. You know, in the in the 19th century, we ran through a bunch of real mediocrities, <laughs> right? Um, both before Abraham Lincoln, especially before Abraham Lincoln. Before they were worse than mediocrities. Yeah, they were they were flat out terrible. And then in, in, you know, after, after Lincoln, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, ran through a series of mediocrities too. Um, I'm not necessarily certain that we're not going to start running through one-term presidencies here. I, I think that unless there's a major realignment, I think that we've got a, such a evenly divided electorate that I, I see flip-flopping for the next maybe 20, 30 years in our future here. And I'm not necessarily sure we're going to have a whole lot of two term presidents uh, for the foreseeable future. You know, I think it comes down to um, whether the country can, can write itself, um, stay, stay sound economically, avoid, yeah. avoid catastrophes like, like wars that go bad or pandemics, which are not really anybody's fault, but still, yeah. you know, um, it, it Right now, I think the, the mood is, is pessimistic, uh, especially on the economy. 
if, if we can somehow, um, you know, get back, get back on a strong footing. And after, actually, after the Civil War, it was it was one party domination in part, in part because of the Civil War. The right. Democrats have been on the wrong side of it. And in part because there were certainly ups and downs, but the country was growing like crazy. People were flocking here and, and the economy was was booming along with the Industrial Revolution. If we can get to that mode, then I think we'll see, you know, two term presidencies and maybe even three or four term presidencies within a party. But if things go the way they are now, um, where there's a, you know, a crisis every couple of years and the economy is unstable, then yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be bounced back and forth. And we're going to, when we probably didn't see our first, um, turmoil in a transition either, if, if that's the case. Yep. All right. Paul Mirangoff, you can find him at, um, Ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. Paul, you're not on Twitter, are you? I'm not. Good for you. <laughs> I told you guys. I told you guys. Paul's a smart guy. That's why I like talking with Paul. I, I, I am on Twitter. You can make you can you can make any value judgments on that that you that you will. But uh, in order to read Paul, you then you definitely have to go to ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ed. When we come back, more from the Ed Morrissey Show, so stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. Joining me right now is my friend Phil Kirpin from AmericanCommitment.org. AmericanCommitment.org. He's also a columnist at Kegel.com. Uh, so you can read his work in either of those two places. Uh, and uh, we often talk about uh, uh, economic issues, and Phil's got a good um, piece up today. Reject new energy taxes with energy prices already soaring. Now, this is actually not up today, but this is something that you've been working on for quite a while. And Phil, why is this important to get this word out now? Are, are, are we looking at more taxes on the energy sector? Well, you know, it's actually kind of a remarkable situation because uh, obviously the number one issue on pretty much everyone's mind is the outrageous run up in the prices for energy. And you know, I think gasoline's up over 50% in the past year and energy overall is up 35%. So it's, uh, it's, it's really hammering people hard. And it's, uh, it's not just inflation because inflation's running 8%. It's much, you know, there, it's a real price increase above and beyond all the money creation. It's being driven by a lot of things that we can get into. Uh, but the one thing that I think most people would assume is, you know, quote unquote, big oil is out there trying to lower prices and advocating for my interests and using their lobbying might and their clout. And you kind of just assume that that's happening. But remarkably, um, they're kind of doing the opposite in that, you know, the Wall Street Journal somehow got a hold of this slide deck that the uh, lobbyists for the big oil companies have been shopping around town in Washington. And they're actually saying, please pass a carbon tax. Please pass a tax on oil and gas that we will collect and, uh, pay, you know, from our customers and remit to you. And, uh, they, you know, they're even saying things like, you know, but keep this secret because we don't want to anger the Republicans, you know, before they might come back <laughs> into power and, and that kind of thing. And I think it's really important for people to know about this, not because it's going to happen anytime, you know, in the immediate term, but the fact that it's still being kept alive and the fact that industry players are pushing for it means it's the kind of thing that some dumb Republicans might do even after they have control and might do in a big bipartisan agreement or something like that. And I just think it's really critical that we as taxpayers, as consumers, uh, are actively advocating on these energy issues and not making the false assumption that the industry is doing that. 
Well, and part of this too is it's driven on the um, on I don't want to say the assumption, but on on the predicate that uh, oil companies are making windfall profits, that they're making money hand over fist here. I mean, there's a lot of nonsense information that's going out there, and, and certainly revenues are up <laughs> for oil companies. That's a function of inflation. Um, in some cases, profits are up somewhat, but for the most part, if you take a look at the quarterly reports for these, for the major oil companies, that includes the refiners. And I've done this, right? I've looked at the Q1 numbers when, you know, prices were soaring. This is supposedly the Putin price hike, uh, you know, period of time. Uh, you know, the, the quarterly reports were showing basically the same level of profits that the same companies were making the, the year before in the same quarter, Right. Um, I think Chevron was up to 11.5%, which if you know anything about, <laughs> if you know anything about investments and, and publicly traded companies, 11.5% is not a bad, is not a bad net profit number, but it's, it's, it's far below things like, oh, I don't know, the finance industry where you're more typically going to find somewhere around 20 to 21%, uh, net profits. Uh, you know, ExxonMobil was at 6%. They'd been at 4.6%, the, um, the same quarter of the year before, that sort of thing. So I think there's a there's a sort of a misconception just to start off with that these guys are really raking it in and therefore we have to get, you know, we have to do this to put a, a break on, you know, as, as sort of a disincentive to seek um, so-called, you know, excessive or windfall profits. Well, first of all, the Democrats are uh, addicted to this insane idea that you make something less expensive by placing a tax on it. When well, yeah. <laughs> you will have precisely the opposite effect. Uh, Chevron, by the way, I don't know if you saw this last week, they're closing their iconic Northern California corporate headquarters, and they offered all the employees there uh, to relocate to Texas. Uh, Chevron, formerly known as the Standard Oil Company of California, has given up on California. It's kind of interesting after you know 140 years as kind of an iconic California company. And you know, I think that's kind of indicative of the fact that the problems that the energy industry faces are, you know, created by bad public policies and nowhere in the United States has worse public policies than in the state of California. And so you can escape state policies to a certain extent, but you really can't escape uh, the national policies. And, you know, we're hoping that we're going to get some good news from the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, Wednesday is going to be West Virginia versus EPA, most likely, and they right. may substantially trim uh, the, uh, you know, the asserted authority of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases. And of course, you know, this was an abs absurd endeavor from the start. Uh, and it was a 5-4 Supreme Court majority in Massachusetts versus EPA that started this whole thing when they said, yeah, the uh, states are right, EPA, you must regulate greenhouse gases under the 1970 Clean Air Act, even though in 1970, the, you know, the consensus was global cooling and an ice age was coming, but somehow right. it's supposed to be a global warming law, even though none of its authorities uh, are really uh, appropriate for that purpose. And so we may get relief to a certain extent from the Supreme Court, but it's not just EPA, it's the Interior Department, which has been you know, shockingly aggressive on limiting leases and permits. Uh, but really, I think what's been new and the reason there's been so much of a thumb on the scale against domestic energy production is they've really weaponized the financial system against fossil fuels. And this is only partially through government, uh, you know, with things like the SEC climate disclosure rule and the, the Treasury Department said summits and that kind of thing. But a lot of it is driven by the investor community, Larry Fink at BlackRock and others running universities university endowments and uh, union pension funds and the whole ESG and DEI movement, they've essentially made it so that 
you know, if you invest in an oil and gas project, the hammer comes down on you and you get protested and you get divestment. And, you know, there's so many headaches that, uh, you know, what we've been hearing from a lot of the companies that normally would respond to this price action by putting more wells into production, they, they said there's no capital. There's no money out there to do that because, you know, nobody wants to stick their head up and get it chopped off on Wall Street. So now we've got all of the environmental regulations of the Obama years, although we're hoping for some relief from the Supreme Court. But layered on top of that, you've got this weaponization of the financial system. And if you look at what's happened, you know, the Biden administration likes to say, well, we have record high production, which is not actually true. What they're doing is they they do this chart where they do average annual production for the Trump years. So they average in the COVID year when it collapsed. And that's how they show that it's a little bit lower than where we are right now. So a little bit is just deceptive in the way they measure it. But, you know, Let's say, forget about that. Let's say it were true that we were at, you know, a record high production. You would expect it to be much higher even than it is now because of where the price is. The way a market normally works, you know, prices go up to $5 a gallon for gasoline, all the stuff, you know, that is an incentive to bring a lot more wells into production. The rig count should go through the roof. The barrel, barrels of production should go through the roof. And in fact, that's happened in the rest of the world. It's happened significantly uh, in the non-OPEC countries like Norway and Russia, even in the OPEC countries where there's more political control, we've seen production increase significantly more than in the United States. And you know, we think uh, Casey Mulligan, uh, an economist at the University of Chicago, is uh, going to be publishing a paper on this in the next couple of weeks that I got a sneak peek at. Uh, he ran the calculations and based on where the price is, U.S. production in the absence of anti-energy policies would be three million barrels a day higher. So we have really massively cut, blocked, prevented the run-up in production that you should see based on the price movement. And we've done it through insane, stupid policies from this administration. They have caused us to be suffering the pain that we're suffering right now, uh, you know, to the extent that it is. It's not to say that there wouldn't have been a price shock anyway, because, you know, you were going to have a price shock for a whole number of reasons, regardless of what the policies were. But normally the market responds to the price shock. You get right. more production, the price comes back down. That's happening in other countries that has not happened in the U.S. And we have most of the global swing capacity at this point. And so that that hasn't happened is actually a huge global problem. And, you know, this administration has been enormously dishonest about this because they said about a million times on the campaign trail that they wanted this to happen, you know, right. that they were even willing to accept economic pain for it to happen. And even now, you know, I remember at the first time Pete Buttigieg had his, you know, famous Marie Antoinette line, you know, everyone knows the story, supposedly Marie Antoinette was told the people can't afford bread. And she said, oh, let them eat cake. Well, this administration, they say, oh, the people can't afford gasoline. And they say, oh, oh, let them drive electric cars. And, you know, the first time Pete Buttigieg said it, I thought it was a gaffe. But then, like, they all said it 20 more times. Like, that's right. like officially the policy. Genevieve Granholm said it, for instance. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, Joe and Biden said it's all part of his incredible transition. Yeah, it's it's yeah, incredible transition. So, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to say, hey, why won't you invest billions of dollars into production and refining capacity, even though we're totally committed to destroying your industry in the medium term? Well, you know, and John Berman, why this doesn't work. Yeah, John Berman actually challenged. I think it was Granholm on that very point. Uh, it was either Granholm or one of the White House um, advisors. And John Berman was like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know. How does that work? You're you're telling them you're going to shut this down, but you want them to invest billions of dollars that you can't possibly recoup in the period of time you're allowing them to continue operating this. And they're like, well, you know, they can do it. They've got billions of dollars. Well, yeah, they got billions of dollars that belong to stockholders, right? And 
people, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of misconceptions that go on here and I don't want to get too much in the weeds because I want to talk about your column a little bit first. Um, but people have this misconception, Phil, that the oil industry is three or four different corporations. There's hundreds, maybe thousands of companies that are part of this. And most of them don't have any sort of real access to capital in large part because, again, the, the White House has made it clear that they don't see that they, they, they want this thing shut down by 2030. So nobody's going to invest heavy capital in, into things like production. They're also not going to invest it in things like refining. And this is really the big bottleneck. You talk about we could be produce we should be producing 3 million barrels a day more than we're producing right now if we if we had a rational policy the problem is is i don't think we could be refining that much we'd basically be stockpiling it here because we're at just about max refiner capacity and we haven't built a new we haven't built a new refinery since 1977 here i think um i think that there finally was one i think there's one you know somewhere in the gulf that was opened a few no 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 1977 was the last one that was in beaumont texas yep they're they're expanding a couple but they've also shut down a couple this year in fact um but um the expansion is you know expansion is one thing but you really need robust new refining capacity and they're just it it just the refining capacity keeps shrinking you can't make the economic first of all for a lot of for a lot of reasons of economy of scale, it's made more economic sense to do expansions on existing footprints than to open new refineries. Uh, but what we've seen the last few years, so so part of that, you know, for some of the years like through the eighties and stuff like that, I think it was less bad policy and more just the economic logic of expansions versus you know putting. So we need to be a little careful that we talk about that long period of time. But it's been something very different uh, for the last ten years or so, and especially for the last couple of years, which is uh, just the the capital environment makes it an incredibly difficult sell, essentially impossible right. uh, to uh, raise the money to build a refinery. The, the break evens don't work because you look at the you look at the cost, and you know you you want to be able to depreciate something like that over forty years. But how do you do that if all of the public policy says? You know, we're going to be 100% EVs or, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, the, the Trump administration, they, sorry, the Biden administration says we're going to be 17% EVs by model year 2026 on new vehicle sales. That's like three years from now. And of course, they want to scale it up from there. And so you, you sort of, you know, you're, you're, you're forced, I think, to look from an investor standpoint, you're forced to look at it as sort of like, you know, this should, you know, all else being equal, the more with the, with the market. You know, it, it's showing in the price signals. They should make sense to do this investment, but you've got to trust politicians not to destroy the value of your investment, which nobody uh, is willing to do. And then on top of that, you know, you've got massive permitting issues, siting issues, uh, environmental impact statements, all of the all of the various bureaucratic nonsense that goes with building anything of any size and scale in this country. And then because you're using toxic chemicals and they're fine and everything like you've got all of these other EPA issues and other local and state regulatory and permitting issues. And so you've got a massive, massive kind of kind of wedge of all of these kind of overhead costs that are built into it. And if you can't make the investment pay off, then you know, even if you have access to capital from your own funds, like, you know, if you're a, you know, an incumbent, uh, you just can't make the economics work. And of course, this was made much, much worse in the last couple of years because you did have those closures. I think a big one closed in Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, if you have closures and, you know, there are a number of reasons, there are market reasons and regulatory reasons and the collapse in demand during the pandemic. And, you know, I get why you might get. But once the closures happen, now you've got you've got that big wedge 
And so, you know, you can have the closures make sense, but that doesn't mean that once the conditions change back to what they were before, you're going to get a reopening or a new refinery built. And so they're just, there are a lot of challenges to, to fixing that problem. And, you know, the fact that the administration keeps it every time the administration says they want more refining capacity before they even finish the sentence, they say, oh, but we want to get off of uh, gasoline, you know, in the next couple of decades or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I just, the mixed message really makes it impossible to put billions of dollars into, you know, even a major expansion, let alone a new plant. So why, why is the, um, uh, it says that the nation's biggest um, oil industry trade group is somebody I was just speaking to um, yesterday, right? American Petroleum Institute. Um, uh, is this a, really an API thing or is it just their climate change committee that came up? Well, with you know, they're starting, it's interesting. They're starting to sound a lot more like me and you in terms of their pushback against the administration because I think they're getting fed up with being a pinata. Uh, so, you know, they are saying, some of the things we've been saying, and they're, they're kind of getting stronger in their public voice. I think it's really interesting that while their public voice is starting to be more aggressive towards the administration, at least as of a couple of months ago, they were still privately shopping this idea of a carbon tax. And I think that there's a, you know, I, I think that, I think there are two things going on in these companies. And these are the major integrators. You know, this, these are not the small guys. The American Petroleum Institute like BP and Shell and Exxon, sort of the, the, the big, big ones. And I think there are two things going on. One is I think that they've, sort of internally become kind of woke and they've bought into global warming and, you know, they've got, I'm sure, lots of Gen Z working there now. And so they are sort of dealing with the hard left turn of all the rest of corporate America. And so they just internally, they've got to be for doing a big thing on global warming. And, you know, this is the least bad thing. And so they're for it. And so I think that's kind of a, a big part of it. But I also think they still have, they, they are still holding on to this delusion, which I don't know, started 10 or 20 years ago that, if you just put on a carbon tax, then, you know, the green groups and the Democrats will call off the dogs from the EPA and interior and all their other regulatory headaches and problems will go away and they'll just have to, you know, pay their pay their toll and they'll be able to conduct business essentially. And I've always thought this was a total fantasy because I've never heard a green group or a Democrat say that they're willing to take that deal. They say, oh, yeah, sure, we'll put a tax on, but they also want all the other stuff as well. And so I think that there's this this. Uh, naivety that uh, you can sort of, uh, you know, tax your customers and, you know, collect the, pay the toll, if you will, and that'll kind of buy you an indulgence from all the other stuff. But I, I just well, can't imagine it would actually work that way. I think Rudyard Kipling said this best, right? <laughs> In his poem about the Dana Guild. Yeah, right. You can you can pay the Dana Guild, but, you, you, but you'll never get rid of the Dane, right? And that's kind of Maybe they're maybe they're starting to figure this out, but you know, I was again, I was talking with Mike Summers, uh, API, who's a great guy, and we had a great conversation on a previous podcast, and you know, he was pretty adamant about the idea that they they need less taxes and less regulation. So I'm a little surprised. I'm hoping that, that this uh, came out of their climate change committee. I'm hoping that it gets stuffed uh, by their by their executive it, committee. It would be it would be nice. It would be nice if they. Uh, you know, totally disavowed it and said, you know, this, you know, we're going to shelve this or something like that. But, you know, it's not just the, it's not just the, um, oil and gas majors themselves. You know, they, there was also right. around the same time the business roundtable put out their energy plan. And this is like the corporate CEOs across sectors, like all the big companies in the economy, their CEOs are in business. That roundtable. one I can, that one I can see more why that they would 
they would maybe, I, I think it's still yeah, it a stupid idea. It was like a 12-point plan or something. And yeah. number five was like price carbon with an asterisk. And then you go down to the asterisk and it was like, we don't care how you do it, carbon tax, cap and trade, whatever, but, you know, price it for certainty or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it was it was, it was was sort of like the typical warmed over corporate global warming kind of thing. And you're sort of like, what is this doing in the middle of your plan to like increase production and do all these other sensible things? And, you know, I think part of that is just, you know, the, the way committees work. And, uh, you know, corporate America, they thought they needed to have that in there. But, you know, I think that um, we we need to have a lot more clarity on where we want to go directionally on energy. I don't think it works to say two, two totally opposing directions at the same time, the way this administration keeps saying over and over and over again. I think right. that we've got to put this to a choice. You know, do we want to let the market determine this? And uh, if that means, you know, another 50 or 100 years of fossil fuels, so be it. Or do we want to say we're going to put a massive thumb on the scale and spend you know, a huge amount of money and cause a huge amount of economic pain to cause a transition that doesn't make sense on the economic merits because of, you know, for whatever environmental reason or what have you. And, you know, if the proposition is the latter, uh, you know, you got to own up to it and you have to be willing to accept those costs, which I don't think anyone actually is politically, which is why we have the model that we have right now. Uh, but, you know, kind of to the, to the point that I was making, I know I'm, I'm jumping all around a little bit, but, you know, corporate America and corporate lobbyists are not going to make this case for us, or at least not make it clearly. And so I think it's really incumbent on us kind of as citizens to make sure kind of going into the election season that, you know, we're sort of grilling all the candidates to be crystal clear on this, that they're not going to look for some half halfway compromise or confused position that they're going to say, you know, we're going to let markets determine what happens on energy and uh, we're going to get a clear green light for American energy production so we can get things kind of kind of turned around. And, you know, candidates who aren't willing to do that or who have sort of wishy-washy positions, I don't think they're deserving of our support this year. Well, Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org. I think that's a good place to leave it. But where can people find out more? I mean, AmericanCommitment.org. What can people do at AmericanCommitment.org to help help get the word out? Well, we have an action center. We're actually in the middle of changing vendors, so I'm not sure if it's like totally working right now uh, because the vendor we've used for 10 years suddenly decided to go out of business. So we're switching vendors on our on our contact uh, Congress uh, sort of facility on the website. But usually what we do is we, we really push a lot of letters into regulatory agency dockets and into Congress and try to make it easy for people to make their voices heard you know, on kind of the key economic issues. And uh, you know, the, all the stuff's on our website. And I'm also a Twitter addict. So if people want my up to the second thoughts, or if they can stand my up to the second thoughts, uh, it's my last name, Kirpen. At Kirpen. That's at K-E-R-P-E-N. I follow him. You should be following him at this point, too. Phil Kirpen, thanks so much for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Have a good one. Stand by for more from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you liked what you saw, be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the town hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VIP, VIP gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. 
That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's on-the-road journalism, first-person journalism, journalism you can trust from the border, from the unrest in cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.